Hello, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Is this message end-to-end encrypted? Oh, no. Today, we have a few panelists. We have Justin Dorfman. Hey, everyone. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. And we have the definitive version of me, last I checked. Hello, everyone. We also have a guest on this podcast, as is our usual habit, Nadim Kobesi. Hey. Nadim runs a small company in Paris called Symbolic Software. What does Symbolic Software do, Nadim? We're a company based out of Paris. We we're very small. It's basically just three people, and uh, we do security audits. And sometimes we develop uh, applied cryptography research software that's open source software. And you've been doing security and just cryptography for the last decade or so, right? How did you end up? Yep, where it's you pretty are? much been a decade so far. Although. I didn't know anything when I first started off. So it took a few years out of that decade to have any relevant experience and to even like reach the stage where I was anything more than an absolute beginner that didn't know anything. I got started with this through, I think it was CryptoCat, the first real open source project that I worked on. It's the secure messaging project that was trying to use JavaScript in the browser in order to offer a sort of like live web 2.0 messaging experience. That was superior to uh, the existing messaging solutions such as PGP and OTR strictly in terms of usability. Now, the issue with that is that I was kind of aiming for the user experience as my primary goal. And I was, I think at the time, 20 years old. So the technical aspect was, you know, lacking to the degree that the Australian government had to issue a warning regarding just how horribly insecure CryptoCat was a year into it existing. But it still was, you know, like, I think something that created a big discussion into how secure messaging uh, can be more accessible and, and so on and, and how we can make tools that offer this service that don't necessarily need you to have a beefy computer running or, you know, manually exchanging public keys and stuff. But, you know, Signal came up after that and it's been doing a great job moving that forward. Wait, I need to ask you something. What government told you that you're... No, 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 no. No one told me. So uh, I was just poking fun at the fact that we had really severe security vulnerabilities. And uh, the Australian government at one point issued an advisory, which they do for things like, I mean, Microsoft Windows having like a zero day that lets anyone do remote code execution just without even trying just a like really catastrophic no 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 it wasn't a cv it was more oh. than it was i i don't know whether i can find it right now but it was basically like if you are using this you should not it's it's not really important it's just a thing that sort of outlines to what degree um, the project was lacking in terms of security it sort of became like a legend and just how terribly insecure it was we had so many critical vulnerabilities. And so for the past two years, I taught a class at NYU in computer security. And I was just using CryptoCat as a way to sort of like go through all the things that you shouldn't do. Right. And in that sense, it provided a very, you know, surprisingly complete compendium of all the cryptographic flaws that you can uh, possibly include in a secure messenger, so to speak. And yeah, I mean, that, that was basically how I got started. But after that, I went and did some graduate studies in the field and fortunately had the opportunity to obtain some better knowledge in, in this stuff. And so ever since then, I've actually been working on 
another project called Verifpal, which is very much the opposite of CryptoCAD in the sense that it is not targeted at end users that are regular old end users. And instead of just having this big old broken messenger, it's been actually, uh, it's, it's a software tool, an applied cryptography research tool for designing secure protocols and secure protocols can be secure messengers, secure data exchange protocols. It's been used by this secure door lock company called Asa Abloy. I hope I'm saying that right. To like verify the protocol between their smart cards and the doors that unlock their smart card, that their smart cards unlock. And also by Zoom, the video conferencing service that we're using right now, the, the Zoom engineers um, were able to use it to um, do some analysis on the protocols that they were devising when they were improving Zoom security. And so the, the point of it is to just allow you to design better protocols and not make mistakes in designing protocols. And that's, that's the main thing that I'm working on. I, I was working on it just like uh, right up until this, this chat right now. It's a very demanding and also very interesting project. And so formal verification stuff, like verifying cryptographic protocols using automated formal verification tools, this is a field and a set of technologies that has existed for more than two decades now. And it was the main focus of my grad studies. But the tools that exist that allow you to do this stuff are really difficult to use. And so there's still like this sort of like ease of use angle that was present in CryptoCAD. But it's just, I'm making these tools easier to use for engineers and for students and for protocol designers and for cryptography enthusiasts and not necessarily for people who want to just download an app on their phone to obtain a certain regular end user functionality. But at the same time, my end goal is kind of the same because with CryptoCAD, I wanted secure messaging to be more accessible to regular folks. And with Verifpal, I'm trying to make automated analysis and verification of protocols more accessible to just any engineer that does not necessarily have a background in how to properly design and verify these protocols. That's amazing. Thanks for explaining that. Now, with Verifpal, it's in my notes to ask you about that. Now, it's, as you said, you were working on it up until you were about to record this podcast. I checked it out. It looks really solid. And do you plan on building like services around that with your consultancy? Or is it just strictly, hey, this is for the greater good, you know, use it at your discretion? Blah, blah, blah. So we, we have some funding from a foundation that's linked to the European Commission. And it's just public research funding, essentially. And I see it really as a sort of good faith offering to uh, the security community. And the hope, I guess, from a profit standpoint is that people would like it to the point where they would hire us to do security audits independently of it. They would be like, oh, these people made Verifpal. It might be a good idea to have them be the ones who look at our security for our, I don't know, pandemic tracing app or our password manager or our banking application. So far, I mean, I don't know whether Verifpal is, is the one bringing in the business, but it, it's working out in the sense that we are able to get enough support to polish this project. And it's something that takes a lot of polish, specifically because the analysis that it's trying to undertake is complicated. And there's a lot of uh, things that you have to think about when you're designing a framework like this. We're also trying to formalize it, publish the actual analysis logic in a formal sense at a in, in a peer-reviewed journal, and that takes a lot of effort to make, to make sure that we get everything right. But aside from that, I don't really see it as 
like a uh, Red Hat Fedora scenario. I just see it as, you know, Fedora exists. And if you like the people who made it, then you can hire them to do related things. And I, I hope that works out. So it's interesting you brought up the contact tracing apps because that's a very hot topic right now, obviously. So if I remember, Britain came out with one and it was pretty much slated as being a mess immediately. I don't know the situation in Paris. And I'd like you to talk about that. I do know Ireland just released an open source contact tracing app that I think was very well received by the general populace. I may have a, an insider or biased view on that. So I'm not sure exactly how that's viewed by cryptographers because I don't hang out with a lot of cryptographers, sadly. Can you talk a bit more about what's been going on in the world of cryptographically analyzing these various apps and how they deal with privacy and just in general, what your thoughts are? Sure. So here in Europe, we've had a very polarized situation with regards to how these apps are developed. Early on, when the pandemic was first starting, you had two efforts to develop a cryptographic standard for doing pandemic uh, tracing, contact tracing, and so on. There was the PEPPPT effort, uh, privacy enhancing Privacy, privacy, something. It's it's a very long acronym. I'm not. I'm sorry. I don't remember it. And there was also the DP3T effort, and the DP3T effort was basically this combination of people from many countries in Europe, including Switzerland, I believe, Belgium, the United Kingdom, Germany, and their goal was to create a decentralized pandemic tracing protocol that did not uh, have a lot of centralized authority uh, on the server side. There wasn't like this big central server that was uh, granted a lot of trust in order for the pandemic tracing to work. There could be a decentralized solution where people would just have a sort of like a mesh would be built. I'm generalizing, but that's basically it between people's smartphones. And through that mesh, there would be some kind of way to collect pandemic tracing information in a way that's privacy preserving. And on the other hand, you had this German entrepreneur who was also trying to do this effort. And he initially had the DP3T people on board, but then they had an argument. And turns out the argument was based on the PPPEPPT effort, preferring to offer a centralized design, which appeared to be preferred by certain governments, including the French government, and at the time, the German government. And the benefits of the centralized design were such that they, they seemed to believe that it was more foolproof, that in some sense it had better privacy guarantees, and that also it would be easier to uh, update and, and manage than, than having a mesh-based decentralized design. And so that caused a huge rift, and the DP3T people were upset because they were really into designing the sort of privacy-preserving decentralized design without a trusted central authority. And it what ended up happening was that uh, Google and Apple released an API, which was actually just DP3T, like the, the Apple protocol that was baked into the latest versions of iOS. is just an unbranded, white-labeled version of DP3T. And the reason why that existed was such that it would be a way for iOS to allow pandemic tracing applications and API to access Bluetooth. Because on iOS, you cannot access Bluetooth all the time, whenever you want, like you can on a Windows laptop or on an Android phone, unless you have some kind of special permission. And so that was the point, I think, largely the point of that API being baked into the system level on iOS. And on the other hand, you had the PPEPT3T effort who still wanted to do centralized pandemic tracing. And the problem with that is that the design that ended up coming up with that was a French design. And France is the only country 
I don't want to say in the entire European Union, but there is no neighbor to France on all sides of France that has adopted a centralized design. Probably no one in the European Union has adopted a centralized design, although I'm not particularly certain. And uh, France ended up adopting that design. It was designed by INRIA, which is actually my alma mater. This is where I studied for my PhD. That's the Institut National de Recherche en Informatique Automatique, which translates to the National Institute for Research in Computers and Applied Math, I, I guess. And the problem with the centralized protocol is that from the start, there was this intense scrutiny, not just from me, but from other people at INRIA, from you know, people who weren't involved in designing the protocol, researchers, of course, you know, the DP3T researchers were very critical, but, you know, one could reasonably say that this could be due to bias. But although the criticism itself didn't seem biased and seemed very objectively accurate, but, you know, putting them aside, despite their fully objectively accurate criticism, there was a lot of criticism coming even from INRIA itself. And nevertheless, this was still pushed out. And so in France here, we've had, I think, the worst contract tracing application in Europe, or perhaps even the world, I'm not even sure but certainly in Europe. And that is justified by so many things. They essentially have based their full trust on the server. They're assuming that the server doesn't match up IP addresses with people reporting contact tracing events. The iOS application requires constant access to the foreground. They built this custom data set of Bluetooth antenna strength calibration in order to be able to measure physical distances more accurately, which is problematic in both ways. Like if it actually works, it's problematic because now you can use Bluetooth in order to measure distances. And so enabling, like if any other application gets access to that data set, all they need is three points to triangulate the physical distance of everyone using that application. And no one actually thought about this before collecting this data. I asked them, they didn't do an ethics review before collecting this data. So if it works, it's a, it's a, there's a problem. And if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work, which is also obviously a problem. And so they don't have real access to the Bluetooth APIs. They're collecting, amassing enormous identifying information. There are, there are really no privacy guarantees out of this application. And the issue is that here in France, we're supposed to have this body, which is a sort of supervision body over all sorts of digital privacy stuff that gets rolled out by public institutions. And it's called the CNIL, the Commission Numérique Information Liberté, the National Commission for Digital Privacy and Liberty, I guess, is the rough translation. And the CNIL issued a couple of advisories approving of the stop, the French Stop COVID app. And actually, as many people reported later on, those, those advisories either had reviewed another version of the application than the one that was published or had misunderstood how the application works in the first place. So the advisories were highly inaccurate and the application itself was a huge step back in terms of what constitutes good privacy-preserving design. But at the same time, and I think this is entirely due to the fact that we were in unprecedented emergency uh, situations and scenarios, it just, it was rolled out. It was rolled out with the approval of the National Institute for Research in Computer Science the oversight body, the French government rolled it out. I was approved in the parliament. And this is in spite of an enormous outcry that, that has gone completely ignored from researchers who have objectively, provably pointed out flaws in this application. The source code has been published and analyzed. And it's just, this is not something that guarantees a high level of privacy. And finally, and this is, I think, maybe the most important thing, nobody actually ended up reporting 
cases using it. I think in the first couple of weeks, we had maybe less than 10 reports throughout the entire country. And so generally speaking, I think that pandemic tracing applications, at least here in France, have been a colossal failure. There has been a huge amount of terrible design and, and, and short-sightedness and, and panic and also what appears to be simply improper behavior, a skipping of, of certain oversight and ethical oversight norms and regulations. And now it seems that the applications that have been using the decentralized approach have largely had some better success due to the fact that the APIs for them have been, have been built in by the operating systems themselves. So you get better access to Bluetooth on iOS, also on Android. You get better battery life. You, can, you don't have to keep the app running to actually make it work. And finally, like, I think this is the number one thing that's contributing. But aside from that, it's also the case that there's, in my view, a lot less to worry about because the decentralized approach does have some privacy improvements over the centralized approach, in my view. But at the same time, it's still not perfect. There's still a lot of uh, open questions regarding the efficacy of, manage, of measuring distances over low energy Bluetooth, something which no one has addressed. And also the simple fact that, you know, like if you're applying for a job interview and I'm interviewing you, all I have to do is have like a different phone turned on for every person I'm interviewing. And then the phone that ends up notifying me that I've been exposed to someone who has coronavirus is going to give out the, uh, that person and then, then it just can decide not to hire them. Like this is just a very basic example of how all of these systems can be defeated. No system is resistant to this sort of extremely basic attack. Well, basically yes. what you're saying is this is like a next level Black Mirror episode. Like when you're describing this, I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is Black Mirror. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but it's just- sure. I actually, I can't bear to watch it. Every time I watch an episode, it actually scares me to the point that I have to. Right? Yeah, I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I actually, that, that show scares me a lot. It's, um, it's, it's difficult to watch. And I think largely it's because it confirms a lot of my worst fears in a way that's very visceral and dramatized and with a multi-million dollar budget behind it. It's like, I wouldn't say this is exactly like Black Mirror, but it's definitely the same sort of concern. We're definitely heading in, in, in that direction. And unfortunately, you know, like this is really unrelated, but there's this saying at Google that, you know, in order to get promoted at Google, you have to create a chat app. This is why Google has so many chat apps, right? And so I'm not, not at all like making fun of Google, but just I'm using this in order to draw an analogy. And I feel like this was a similar situation, like in order for certain engineers to feel like they did something, they had to release one of these apps, the government, in order for the French government to feel like they had done something hip and cool and modern, they had to publish one of these apps and were, say that the French government had worked on one of these apps. But ultimately, no one actually, like aside from the actual artificial sense of accomplishment, I don't really understand what anyone has actually gotten out of this other than having pushed something through that will have a deleterious effect on what it is that we consider a privacy-preserving technology. And that I think ultimately, aside from weakening, that definition won't actually accomplish anything at all when it comes to dealing with the pandemic. Well, I think that's actually an outcome that some people have wanted. And call me a conspiracy theorist or you know someone with a tinfoil hat, but definitely contact tracing apps are very, very useful for authoritarian regimes, right? A friend of mine was saying, well, it looks like China has been particularly good at dealing with their population and, and COVID. 
And I'm like, yeah, it's been really good at dealing with it if you only qualify a certain amount of people as citizens, right? It hasn't been very good at it if you qualify anyone who lives in the Tarim Basin, anyone who's a Uyghur, right? Where contact tracing apps are really, really dangerous. And we've seen this sort of deleterious effect happen in other things. A lot of what you were talking about, I'm thinking back to other discussions uh, we've had on documents prior to this show about privacy happening in things like Zoom, where you know they feel like they need to deal with a certain problem. And so they implement a solution that maybe wasn't really thought through very well. And so what you have is sort of this, as you say, deleterious effect on what people consider to be private and what people think privacy means and how that affects usability of cryptography over, over time. In China, if you look at the way that they dealt with it, even in the places where they did actually deal with it, it's been by sending drones to round up people and yell at them to go. I don't know whether you saw these uh, videos of Chinese, literally Chinese speaking drones, finding people on the street and hounding them to go home. You know, so you have this drone, this drone yelling at you. Why, why are you outside? Go home right now. Some people have been locked inside their homes and uh, repeat offenders have had their doors welded shut with the uh, food being delivered via baskets uh, from their windows and similar. This is all sourced and documented. So I don't know whether that really qualifies as dealing with COVID. I mean, I guess on paper it does, but I don't know if it does in any other way. And yeah, I mean, it is, it is the case. And this is something, you know, like as a security auditor that I've experienced a lot, it really seems that a lot of the time, you know, so imagine you're, you're getting an audit for your car, let's say, like you want to know whether it's safe to ride your car. If, 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 I, if I ride my car, is it going to get me to point B or is it going to blow up? I don't get an audit for my car because I want to tell everyone how great my car is or show, you know, the, the glory of, of my incredible car. But it does seem to be the case in security that when you want to say that you've dealt with a security issue or dealt with a privacy issue or even gotten an audit to look at your security or privacy infrastructure or product or solution or design, a lot of the time, the goal seems to be just to say that you have dealt with it and to proclaim that you have solutions that are very private and secure and so on, but not to actually learn new knowledge for yourself, actually discover new information, obtain valuable information about the actual truth and sanity of your design or, or, or what you're working on. And uh, that's something that goes up from you know how people see the relationship between technology and the pandemic how people interpret security and privacy issues in general, or how people maybe interpret all of life and all problems in life and so on. It's just, this is a very overarching thing about human psychology. And when you're working in security for a long time, I mean, another thing, and this is, this is something that I frankly think I deserve more credit for, if I, even if I do say so myself, like despite the insanely embarrassing and critical vulnerabilities in CryptoCat, it's actually... Every single time we had one of them, I would be ridiculously open about it and publish it like immediately. Like this is, hello, your chats haven't been secure for the past year and we've messed up completely. And it appears that there's no reason for you to trust us in any conceivable way. And it would just be on the blog. And there have been many other applications that have end-to-end -end encryption that have actually had and this is normal. It's not because, you know, the people writing them are terrible or because they're badly, they're actually excellent applications that I personally use all the time, but because they've existed for a long time and because writing security is hard, I've had comparable uh, security vulnerabilities across their uh, ecosystem. And I've never seen that being communicated as honestly as, as it was in the CryptoCat uh, situation. And the thing is like, 
every time I was doing that, I would get pushback from so many people who were concerned for me. Like, don't do it. This is terrible. What are you thinking? What a terrible idea. Right. And I feel like this is the dominant psychology, right? Like you don't, if you're forced to, you would recognize a security issue or a privacy issue up to a certain point. And if you, if you actually recognize it, you recognize it in a way that's couched in some politically or socially comfortable format, but that's, that is the extent. And, and it's always about what is, and obviously, I mean, if you're running a for-profit company, that makes perfect sense. And there's nothing stupid or wrong or immoral about that. It actually makes perfect sense. It's intelligent and it's even responsible if you're managing the reputation and the paychecks of, I don't know how many people that, that rely on your company's reputation. But if you're managing an open source project, it starts to become a bit strange that you would push so hard for you know, your audit to be perfect, even though you've had security vulnerabilities and you, you, know, you want to massage that audit report to remove the actual severity of each vulnerability, or if you have some kind of problem with your software. I mean, what's the point of this PR management psychology in open source? That's what I'm wondering, especially if all your users are expecting from you is to be forthright and objective. I mean, not obviously not flagellating yourself with a whip every time there's a bug, but just communicating it honestly. So the, the sort of like seeping of, of PR thinking into nonprofit and open source technology is, is something that I find very unusual. Look, speaking of auditing, Rust TLS, that's, that's how we got in contact. What did you do for them? How did you get paid? What is Cube 53? That's what I need to know. This is, this is very important to me. <laughs> sure. So Rust TLS is a Rust implementation of TLS, as you can probably tell from the name. And they essentially, so Cure53 is a uh, German-based cybersecurity and auditing company. They are run by Mario Heydrich and his team, and they are absolutely a fantastic, fantastic team. I really love working with them, and I've been working with them closely. Symbolic Software in general has been working with them closely for the past uh, three years, I believe, about around that time. And the way that works is that they focus more on web apps and web audits and uh, security audits in terms of code. And they sometimes need more of a cryptography insight into things. And so they sort of bring us in to, do, to work with them on more crypto-related audits, right? of which Rust TLS is obviously one. For, for very important and clear reasons is implementing a cryptograph the most used uh, widespread cryptographic protocol. And with TLS 1.3 and TLS 1.2, a significantly complex cryptographic protocol. So I worked with, with Q53 on it and I was handling the cryptography implementation of Rust TLS. They were using this crypto library by Brian Smith called Ring. And so now I think Brian wanted us to look at Ring very closely, very, very, very closely, and that's normal. But since the target was Rust TLS, we were only able to look at Ring to the point of how it was being used by Rust TLS. So if, if there was like some sort of Ring functionality like ASGCM or elliptic curve crypto that was being used by Rust TLS, then we would uh, include that. And the audit of Rust TLS, as you can see in the public report, basically focused on is the cryptography sound. And then after that, what we focused on the most was the state machine of TLS. And so in 2015 and 2016, you had a lot of attacks on TLS that were basically focusing around tricking the state machine into jumping into another state in the protocol, skipping certain key verification, message authentication steps, and then landing you in a situation where 
you had an insecure session between two parties. And this was even used to force a certain very high profile US government websites into insecure sessions, which is pretty impressive. And so implementing the TLS state machine, unless you're really, really focusing hard on doing it right, is non-trivial, especially because you have versioning between TLS 1.2 and TLS 1.3, which are very, very, very difficult, different protocols. TLS 1.3 probably should, should have been called TLS 2, right? And this is something that we focused on a lot. And the, so I'm someone who's very critical of reports being complimentary or nice or having like saying, you know, we audited this code base and it was amazing. We loved it. You know, I, I don't like uh, reports that say that. I think it's better to be neutral. But even, you know, I, I think Rust TLS, I'm pretty sure actually, it's the only time ever that I've audited something and felt like this was actually, uh, I, I, personally, I, I don't think I could have written code this good myself, right? Like I was hired to audit it and I feel like maybe this was a, this was a time when I was barely qualified to do that because sure, I mean, I'm an independent set of eyes and I have a different perspective on issues, but the code was so clean and everything was so well thought of that regardless of the angle from which I was looking at it, whether it was, you know, the constant time primitives or this, you know, the state machine or the side channel attacks or anything like that, or cipher suites or whatever. It was really a very impressive implementation. They do have a sort of benefit in that they're only implementing TLS 1.2 and TLS 1.3, which are easier versions of TLS to get right than TLS 1.1 and 1.0, especially TLS 1.3 is, is uh, TLS, so TLS 1.3 was the first version of TLS that was designed in collaboration with formal verification with academic, right? So TLS 1.3, I remember at our lab, we had Eric Rescorla, the CTO of Mozilla. So not symbolic software at my lab when I was a PhD student at INRIA. We had him visiting pretty much every, every month, if not every week. And the point of this was to meet with the people there who were working on protocols and to get their input into TLS 1.3. Microsoft Research contributed a lot. A lot of different Cloudflare, I think, contributed. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of people. No, I was going to say Cloudflare definitely was a major contributor. Sure. Yeah. That's right. That's true. And so a lot of people contributed a lot. And ultimately, it was basically the first version of TLS that was specified and formally analyzed before being released. Before that, you would basically just have academics finding protocols in the wild, like TLS 1.0 and TLS 1.1, and breaking them after the fact of them being released, simply because they were never formally analyzed, formally specified by applied cryptography researchers and academics before they were actually out there. And TLS 1.3 was the first protocol, I think, to break that mold. I kind of want to take a, a little right turn. So in the notes... I see code of conduct effectiveness. Now, I always seen that as a code of conduct has always been like a, oh, I just need to add a code of conduct to add a code of conduct. I don't think anyone's really read it a majority of the time. So what is your thoughts on the effectiveness of uh, COCs? I think you can still exclude people and be really nice about it. That's, that's pretty much the summary. Like the code of conducts are, you know... I don't think there's anything bad about them, right? So they're obviously, they, they eliminate a class of problems. They, or not, or rather, they uh, warn against a class of behaviors and that class of behavior gets discouraged and that's fine and that's universally good and there's no way that that's bad. I just think that you can have a code of conduct where everyone is nice and you can still have gossip about people that, you know, maybe you don't like 
that you can still have a perfectly nice way of, of ignoring contributors, of, of not paying attention, of uh, leaving their GitHub issues open or not responding to them on mailing lists just because you have some sort of personal issue with them. Whether that be, it doesn't have to be as nefarious as some sort of racial bias that you may have or something like that. It doesn't really have to be so bad. You may just not like them. And in, in that sense, I think that the code of conduct actually excuses you from having to deal with your own exclusion because you, you can just say, well, sure, I'm deciding to ignore that person and not engage with that person, but I'm following the code of conduct. So that means everything's fine, right? I'm doing everything correctly and there's no problem in my community and everything's going great. And, you know, like, I just think that we really live in, in term, I'm talking about open source communities right now. I think we really live in a very polarized environment and everyone's making sure to follow codes of conduct. And that's, that's fine. That's great. But I just want to say, like, if, if you see a community that's following the code of conduct all over and every time someone speaks, it's like, you know, poetry flowing from them and everything is rosy and great. That doesn't mean that this is a community where there aren't any people being excluded where there aren't any people being dealt with unfairly or not being allowed to contribute for reasons that are not justifiable from an objective or professional standpoint. But at the same time, because everyone is following the code of conduct, no one feels bad for, 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 for still. And so in that sense, it can be a real psychological detriment. And, you know, like so, sometimes there's also another thing where you feel like you have to excuse a lot of interference with your project because of the, the rules established by the code of conduct. Like for example, a, as a maintainer, there's another side to this, like as a maintainer of my own open source project, I would love to have a code of conduct for contributors. And I would love to be able to adhere to that and make sure that everyone has a fun time and everything. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that people can make demands out of the language and out of the way that I choose to present my own software. And so it's just, I feel like there's too much that's being ascribed to in, in, in terms of what kind of solutions code of conduct can actually account for or, or, or present. And it's, it's hard to talk about this because I don't want to bring up any examples at all, right? Like I, I really do not, but... We'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep those for another day. <laughs> sure, sure. But yeah, I just want to say like it's... It can be really painful and uh, it, can, it can lead to situations where you have no recourse because before the code of conduct, you could have essentially said, you know, I wish there were bylaws to deal with this. I wish there was a, a code to deal with this. And now there is one, but there is no way, like you can't actually codify these things into a code of conduct or, or a code of anything. You can't say, oh, ignoring someone is not allowed. I mean, it's, how, how do you deal with that? And not only can you not say that, but it's actually unfair to say that. Like it's, it, it is people's ultimately, like it is, you know, you can't just ban people from, you know, the, how, how they decide to focus their intention. That's, that's dystopian in a different sense. But at the same time, I just want to say, it's not that they're bad. It's not that they need to be changed. It's that the uh, scope of solutions being attributed to them, the scope of progress being attributed to code of conduct is wildly exaggerated. Another thing that's well exaggerated is their effectiveness, right? Uh, putting a code of conduct into your repo doesn't do anything by itself most of the time. All it does is says that we've agreed maybe two or three people who are maintainers have decided this is how we're going to roll. But you can't, normally people don't ask every single contributor, do you like this code of conduct? Normally there's no space for actual dissent because if you raise your voice saying, I don't like this code of conduct, you get smacked down really, really fast for a lot of reasons. 
because it's political. But the other thing about it is that most codeconics don't have actual arbiters set up to enforce it very well, right? It's just, here are the values we live by. But then if someone breaks those values, there's no general like team of people who like look at things. You know, for much more mature, larger organizations, like there's the community, the community for Node, right? They actually deal with these sort of violations. And that happens a lot because you have thousands of contributors and you have to have a team of people who are able to actually deal with this stuff. But for smaller things, it's normally goes back to like, who's the main guy in the repo, right? Who's the main person that we're going to have decide whether this is code of conduct or not. And so I wish there was another code of conduct that people applied, which says, here's the governance structure. And that kind of goes back to a thing which we often talk about on this podcast, which is how do you build governance? into your open source projects from the get-go to allow implicit biases to become explicit so that you can fix them. And that's something that's really hard. I mean, one of the things about a code of conduct is that you can't enforce empathy. <laughs> you can't say you have to think about the other person before you respond or press enter. That's just, that's not, that's not how humans work. It would be great if that would be something that we could enforce from the top down, but we're not in preschool anymore. So I, I agree with you, and I think that there, there are other larger systemic issues, but I also agree with you that they're great as they are. Like, they're part of the solution. It's better to have them than not to have them. I like code of conducts. I try to put them everywhere. I think it becomes a problem when I, I've seen a code of conduct where it's said in the code of conduct that criticizing the code of conduct is a violation of the code of conduct. That's ridiculous. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is, not, this is not common. This doesn't happen all yeah. the time, but I've seen it, I think, twice. And that's one way it can go weird. Another way it can go weird is definitely the ways that you've mentioned. And frankly, I just think that it's just, you're right. It, it is important to move forward towards something that resembles governance more. And also, I just, ultimately, I feel like it's important to move forward to a place where we have a code of conduct or, or a code of governance or a system of governments that cannot be reduced to performative art. Because that is a lot of what I felt code of conduct have been implementing. You know, we have this community that has turned from, you know, like you have Linus Torvalds, who's very outspoken and very, uh, I, I, I personally think that there's some sort of like artistic value in that sometimes, but he does go overboard a lot. And so you've had people like him calm down and that's fine. But at the same time, a lot of communities that I've seen have been just as exclusive or have become even more exclusive. And the, all the code of conduct has done is just has turned everyone's speech into like the sort of performance of like, observe, behold, how adhering to the code of conduct I am. And everyone is following in those, in that sort of like collective dance. And, but there's not actually any difference on who is brought in more, on who gets included more, other than the people who are already there just continuously, you know, like demonstrating their superior language and communication skills. And finally, you get to sort of like other, like maybe you have someone who is not necessarily violating the code of conduct at all, but doesn't have the same eloquence as uh, everyone else in the, in, in the project and is sometimes maybe more blunt or more direct and in, not in a way that's offensive or, or insulting or unfair or abusive, but just you know, not as verbally affluent as or rosy as everyone else. And, and that person becomes a target of further exclusion under a code of conduct. And furthermore, one, one final thing that I feel is, is, is a bit problematic is that you find yourself in a position where 
by simply having any criticism at all, you already have to defend yourself as not being morally uh, in a gray area or criticizing some sort of greater good, right? And I feel that's very unhealthy. There's a sort of like sectarian sort of religious aspect to it. Like, you know what it reminds me of? So yesterday I was walking on the street and uh, I was approached by one of those Greenpeace guys on the street who just like run up to you like, do you want to learn more about Greenpeace? You know, just, hey, talk to me for a minute. And, you know, there's also Red Cross people. Charity muggers. Right. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, a, that's a reasonably okay thing to do, like raising awareness about the environment or about, there's nothing bad with that. But what I find sort of religiously odd about this is that if I want to say no thank you and keep on moving on with my day because I have a meeting or something, I am... I, I can't do that without that reflecting on my moral consistency as a person. And so now my action towards this person who's accosting me on the street and yelling at me about Greenpeace, which he has you know, no right to do, obviously, there's no way I can actually say no thanks and keep on moving without there being a suggestion about my moral character. You know, am I someone who hates the environment or am I someone who's so selfish that they can't spare two minutes to, to talk about I don't know, the importance of the Red Cross and the importance of donating to hospitals or, 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 or doctors or whatever. And it's the same thing here with, with the uh, social dynamics that are created by whatever code of conduct ends up being adopted. If you have anything to say about it, if there's any sort of way that you think it should be different or a way that you think it's being credited for changes that have not actually occurred or have occurred not because of it, you are starting from a position where you're already sort of like morally guilty. You're beginning from that position and it is through your discourse that you are supposed to justify that you are not. That's a really unhealthy way to, to govern a project. That's an unhealthy way to discuss governance at all. And furthermore, it's, like, it's not even the case that this is happening late in the stage of this form of governance existing. Like these, these codes are super new. And so it is absolutely normal. For people to look at how to improve them or saying, you know, this is not protecting against this. This is being wrongfully credited for that. This is really useless or whatever, like whatever, the, from whatever angle the criticism is, is coming from. And, you know, people say that technology is political and there's a lot of truth to that, right? So I, I'm not disagreeing with that. Like if you look at Signal, that's like such an amazing example of that. But maybe technology doesn't have to be tribal. Maybe it can be political but we can have it be political without being tribal. And there's a lot of tribalism that's entering open source software. And that's, that's a topic that I feel is, requires a lot of thought and a lot of honest reflection from a lot of open source projects. I would agree with you. And I think one of the things I really like about the way you think and the way you talk is that you're looking for the exploits, even in the, 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 the social processes, right? Where does this fall down? How can this be abused? How can we fix it? And that's right. refreshing to see. And I really like that. I wish we could go into it in more depth. I wish we could talk about Signal. Unfortunately, this is a limited time podcast. And one of the exploits we have here is that if we fill it up so much, we can't cover everything. And then some things get left out that are more important. And it's very difficult. So I would like to move on at this point to Spotlight. Before I do that, you've been incredibly eloquent. You have a lot of thoughts on a lot of these topics. I really wish we'd go into them more. Where can people find you on the internet? Where can they see more of your thoughts out there. I have a really bad Twitter account. It's, I mean, I don't even know if people should follow me on it. I have a website where I publish uh, blog posts that are much more respectable. 
And uh, it's just my first name dot computer. So Nadim dot computer. Awesome. Nadim dot computer. Thank you so much for talking about that. Now we're going to switch over to Spotlight, where we highlight things that have helped us out in the past or open source projects, which we feel like need more. Sometimes we vary it up a bit. Justin, what do you got? Youper is a pocket AI therapist, helps me level out. It's not open source. It's a service I pay for. And if you are looking for a robot to talk to, Youper is your person or your robot. Excellent. Thank you. Eric? For me, I'm going to choose today resume.io. I'm in currently in the process of researching and finding a new, a new role for myself. And resume.io has made that super, super simple. They are a paid product as well. They're not paying me to say this, but creating a resume is a pain in the butt. And they made it super easy. Love it. Thank you. I really wish we could have talked about them. I know, Nadim, you have a lot of thoughts. I want to highlight Moxie Marlin Spike's website. Moxie was the guy behind Signal, is the guy behind Signal. And his website, Thought Crime, is awesome. Largely, for me personally, the yacht stories where he and some of his friends just picked up a boat for nothing and sailed around for a while. I did the exact same thing because I read his website when I was in an impressionable young age. Highly suggest people to check it out, throw the computer out the window and go sailing. There's this awesome story on there as well about uh, this time when he was driving or I think he hitched a ride from someone who also had schizophrenia and uh, he spent Mm. the entire ride like dealing with this guy who was like, delusional in this. I, I, think, I think he hitched a ride from him. It was, it's a, I don't know, but that's a really funny story. He's, he's, Moxie's a super interesting person. Train hopper, hitchhiker, punk follower. Just go read his stories. He's a super eloquent dude and a super fun to read, as well as his importance in the cryptography community. Nadim, what do you have for Spotlight today? I thought a lot about this and I have something that's simultaneously very valuable. You said you wanted something that was brought value to my career or life. So This brought a lot of value despite it being very boring for most people. It's basically a really good book about databases called Database Internals by Alex Petrov. It is very surprising. It was very surprising how difficult it was to find a good book about databases. I've recently gotten into reading about database theory and uh, understanding how computer databases are designed. And this was by far, I, I would say this was the only book I could find which was worth of my time. Uh, that, that, that's very disappointing. I was expecting to find a lot of similar high quality books. And so if you want to learn database theory and want to understand how modern databases are designed and think that brings <laughs> value to your career or life, and I understand that's a limited subset of people, but for me, this was a very good book. And I, I recently uh, finished reading it and I found it highly, highly enjoyable and highly informative. Thank you so much, Nadim. It's been awesome talking to you. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.